I am thankful for um, this local church family. I, I, love, I love it here. I mean, I love you. Um, about two-thirds of my believing life has been uh, part of this church family. Um, God has graciously given me much joy and comfort and help and encouragement and correction and growth and sanctification and hope uh, through this church, through, through you. Um, I, I have known some of you for 15 years that we've been here. I knew the passes a little bit longer than that. Uh, we met in California. Uh, and then others of you I've just known for a few months, but I, I'm thankful for this, this body and, and every individual in it. And, um, and, and I'm grateful for that. I wouldn't trade this church for any other. I'm not trying to flatter you, but I'm, that's a sincere um, um, expression of my heart for you. And I, I didn't request this sabbatical time that starts tomorrow because I need a break from you. <laughs> that's not it at all. Um, my my six-week sabbatical does start tomorrow. I would ask that you pray for us, pray, pray for me. We will be praying for you. Um, many of you have talked with me about this. You've asked how you can pray. You've expressed your support for this season of rest, and that means a whole lot to me. Um, and and so, I, again, no, I'm not, it's not that we're eager to be away from Baraka. We're actually concerned about how that's going to be. That's going to be very strange, and we will be ready to be back, I'm no doubt. But I am in need of rest. Uh, I am weak. I'm tired. And, uh, and so I, this was a request that I made. Now, I know God gives grace to sustain his people at all times. There's no question of that, and he certainly has. But he also uses means, and one of those means is rest. And so that's really the, the aim and the hope of this upcoming sabbatical. I, I know we have a lot of runners in this church. Runners know the importance of resting your legs. Um, that that you ha- you can run hard, you can run often, you can run long, but at some point you've got to you've got to rest your legs. It doesn't it doesn't help to just keep running, running, running more, more, more. No, to, in order to in order to avoid injury, in order to train properly, in order to run faster and to race harder, you have to rest. And so this aim of the sabbatical is to is to recover from some muscle fatigue uh, that I have been having difficulty recovering from just in the normal course of life and ministry. So I ask you to pray for me. Thank God uh, my love for the Lord has not waned at all. My love for you, this church, hasn't waned. My love for my family, and there's no, there's no glaring uh, issue that I'm aware of. Uh, that's God's grace. Um, but um, it's really because of those loves, my love for the Lord, for you, for my family, that I'm seeking this time of rest. So I thank you for again, for praying. But I love many things about this church. One of the things I really do love, and I know you share with me in this, is the family feel of this church. And we want to keep that, don't we? We love that family dynamic that exists. This really does feel like a church family. That's great, but you, you have to think about that, what that might come to mean if we're not careful. 
Because when we think of family, and we've talked about this last week, we're members of one body in Christ. We're, we want to be a family to whom we belong and on whom we depend. And we say that, but some people, when we think family, we think a, a small group, a small tight-knit group of people who are pretty much just alike one another. And so that's not what we mean when we say family. It's not what we want to become. We, we do want to be a church family. We, we do want to have that family feel, but we want to be a growing, expanding family. Um, we're not just a tight-knit, closed-off, homogenous, um, inward-focused family, but an arms-open, welcoming family. That's what we want. That's not just what we want, but that's what God wants, as we're going to see in this passage today. God has this beautiful vision for his church. It's a vision of a growing, widely diverse, welcoming, disciple-making, life-sharing, unified, truth-rich, joyful, spirit-filled church. That's beautiful. And we see it in many places in Scripture, that picture. A church family that makes absolutely no sense to the world. That people would look at church and say, how in the world do those people get along together? It just makes no sense. And, and as they say that, God gets all the glory for it. It's His, His doing. And so that's, that's the vision that Paul wants for the Roman church to see. And, and so he's already told them, we saw this last week in Romans chapter 12, that, that there is this objective spiritual reality that's already in place. There's, this, this, this is what undergirds any expression of community, of relationship and fellowship. And so this is what's behind that. It's that we have a shared life in Christ. It's, it's already done. We've, we, are, we are members of one body in Christ. Whether we live like it or not, whether we realize it or not, if you are in Christ, you are part of this body. You do share life in common with every other person who is in Jesus Christ. So community isn't just something we pursue. It's not something we create. It's, it's a spiritual re- reality that we already have. We possess it. And so what we need to do then is, is to not create community, but to cultivate this community and to, to grow it and to foster its growth and its expression. And so, so that sounds wonderful and beautiful, but how has your experience of community been in the local church? Have, have, have all of your experiences in churches been uh, a tangible expression of that spiritual reality, this shared life in Jesus Christ? I doubt it. I, 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 does it. Does it always feel like the church is this growing family to whom we belong and on whom we depend? Well, the stubborn reality is that the wonderful experience of biblical community that God wants for us is, is often kind of elusive. Instead, we find disagreements and divisions and differences and disappointments. It's messy. It's broken at times. There are hurts and conflicts that abound. Now, I had, in, I had much loftier intentions with this message, and, and I was much more ambitious when I started out, thinking that I could cover a lot more ground today. And so as I was thinking about some of the challenges to that 
expression of community that we talked about last week in the church, there are two main categories. There are those disagreements where we, we come to an impasse. Remember Paul and Barnabas, they, they sharply disagreed with one another and ended up going one ways. There's a passage in Philippians where Paul urges these two women to, to, to agree in the Lord. They couldn't get along, agree in the Lord. And so there are those disagreements that we need to be in harmony with one another in spite of disagreements. And then there are those just differences. We're just different from one another. And that causes trouble. We're not going to be able to cover both. We're just going to focus on those differences uh, today. Maybe we'll pick up the other sometime down the road. There are, there are differences. Such was the case in Rome. And Paul writes to them to, to pursue the experience of shared life uh, despite and in, in, in spite of those differences. So here's the situation in the Bible church at Rome. This is, this is what life was like in that local church. And as we look at Rome, remember, this is a local congregation, just like this is. This could be at the church at, this could be written to Baraka Bible Church, at the church on Corinth Road. Uh, so this is a very diverse city. This was a very diverse church. The differences in that church, the dividing lines, the potential dividing lines, they were not small or shallow or simple. They were, they were massive and they were deep and they were very complex. You had religious and social and cultural and, and racial differences that just ran through this one local congregation. Some of the believers were from Jewish backgrounds. They could trace their genealogy back 50 generations they were very proud of their bloodlines that they, and, and that the fact that they went back to, to Jacob, not to Esau, to Isaac, and not Ishmael, to Abraham, and no other father. They were, they were very proud of that. They were, that was very important to them. And they were grounded in the Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. This was their Bible. They were, they'd been taught the moral law of God since, since they, before they could walk or talk. They, they were circumcised as a sign of the covenant that God made with this people. They only, they still, even these Christian, uh, uh, Christians of Jewish background, they still only ate kosher meat. They still carefully observed Jewish holy days. They still kept regulations and rules and traditions about cleanliness. They've been taught their whole lives not to associate with or be defiled by Gentile dogs. And so as they're here, these Jews are in Rome, they're, they're walking as strangers, as aliens in this Roman culture, and, and they, they're never really part of it. They're always kind of on the outside, some by their own choosing, really. So that's part of the congregation. Then you had others in the congregation in this local church that came from Gentile backgrounds. Their, their religious heritage was, was um, paganism and polytheism and idolatry. They used to worship with temple prostitutes. They had no problem. You put any food in front of them, they'll eat it. Uh, they had no scruples about diet or anything like that. They, they didn't know or even care about Jewish traditions and holy days or anything like that. They thought the Jews were a bunch of legalistic, hyper-religious prudes. So some of some from both of those groups, those Jewish, that Jewish population, that Gentile pagan population, some believed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and suddenly these 
Opposing groups are united in Jesus Christ. They share life in Christ. They are members of one body in Christ. And they're also part of this same local congregation. They're they're going to church with the people that they have been trained their whole life to to, uh, despise and to, to be separate from, to avoid. And so this is not easy for them. You need to understand the context of this. There were these true Christians from Jewish backgrounds who were afraid that they would be corrupted by having too close of association with true Christians of pagan backgrounds. And these Gentile believers thought that the Jewish background believers, they're too strict. They're stuck in the past and they're no longer the focus of, of God's saving plan and they wanted little to do with them. So how is this possibly going to work? What will, what will Paul tell them with all of this tinderbox of difference and, and potential division in this local church? What's he going to say to them? The short of it and the summary of it is this, is to welcome one another. Verse 7, welcome one another. Or accept, your translations may say, or receive one another. It's not simply, no offense, Eric, create a welcome team and produce a welcome packet and have people at the doors shaking hands and with smiling faces and welcoming people into this room. Not to diminish that, but this is much deeper than that, we know. And it's not, uh, accept them, put up with them, tolerate them, just endure one another. No, that's not what this is, what Paul is telling him. It's, it's make it a constant habit of your life to warmly embrace and to accept and sincerely welcome others, especially those who are very different from you. That's what he's saying. And the grounds for this command we looked at last week, the person who is so radically different from you in so many ways, visible ways, is just like you in the most important way. It's that you share life in Jesus Christ. That's the grounds of all that he's going to say here. We saw this in Romans 12. This is just working out the expression of that. Remember that Romans is a letter. It's it's a unit. It's all connected together. And we we have to remember that. I know it's a long letter, but it's, it's a letter. For 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters, Paul is just explaining and expounding the gospel of Jesus Christ. What God has done in sending Jesus into this world to save sinners. And so he has this sustained argument for justification uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And, and, that, and he grounds that doctrine in the, in the doctrine of our union with Jesus Christ. So that's what he's been laboring. He argues this from Old Testament Scripture. He, he applies that gospel to life in, in Romans 5 and 6 and 7. And he draws encouragement from the gospel in grade 8, Romans chapter 8. And he explains how Israel fits into God's saving plan in Romans 9 to 11. And so then we get to Romans 12, where we were last week. And, and he begins to really work out the ethical dimensions of this truth. How, how does that gospel 
show up in the context of just normal, everyday life? And how should it affect how we live our lives? Not just as individual Christians, but together as, as a body, as members of one another, and, 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 and in community. How, do we, how does this show up? And so he talks about how they're to relate to non-Christians. He talks about how they relate to one another in the church. He talks about how they relate to civil government. And then, in chapters 14 and 15... He really begins to tighten the screws on, on, on our relationships to one another in the church. He talks about how do we deal with those with whom we have significant differences. Like I've just explained was the setting of the church in Rome there. These, these major differences among people. How do you get along together? How do you live out that shared life in Christ with those with whom you disagree greatly? One of their main differences and one of their main disagreements was whether or not Christians could or should buy and eat meat from the market that had been slaughtered um, in, in sacrifice to idols. Now, most Jewish believers absolutely would never, ever do that. And then the Gentile background believers, no problem at all. Bring it on. You know, load me up with some, some pork chops here. This is great. But this was more than a meat issue. And that's what Paul's going to show. This was, this was more than simply a disagreement or a difference. They, there were sinful attitudes that were aroused in God's people. It wasn't just about meat. It was about what came out of their hearts as they, as they handled this difference. The stricter Christians, those Jewish background believers, they were tempted to judge the meat eaters. And, 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 and they thought they were too free. And you call yourselves Christians? And you're eating that meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And then you had the freer Christians who were tempted to look down upon those who didn't eat meat for their silly and unnecessary restrictiveness. And so they think, you poor, pathetic, legalist, Jewish Christians. Now how does Paul, what does he do? How does he cut through this? Well, what he doesn't do is pick a side. <laughs> he doesn't tell the stricter Christians, you know, just hold your nose, get with the program, and just start eating pork chops. That's not what he says. And he doesn't tell the pro-meat group to stop your barbecuing, you know, we don't want to offend those other, other people. They might get upset, and so just no more, no more, uh, no more meat. Thank God he doesn't say that. Um, No, instead he speaks to both of them. And he draws them together with these cords of love. And the the nub of it is this, is you welcome. You accept one another as Christ has accepted you to the glory of God. That's it. There was a timely article that I came came across my email this this week. Uh, Email, I can tell you young people what that is later. I used to have to explain mail. Now I have to explain email because my, my kids don't even check email. That's like an old people thing now. Um, but but I, have, I get this uh, uh, nine marks as a ministry. Mark Dever up at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He sends out, uh, their, their ministry sends out articles regularly. And there was an article that came across this week, How to Disagree with Other Christians. 
And it was basically, an, uh, a, there were these summary statements from Romans chapter 14. Our focus is going to be in chapter 15. But to get a, because this is a unit, I, I'm just going to kind of hitchhike off of this. And I've just modified some of these headings. And, and so let me just kind of walk through Romans 14. And we're not going to be able to read through it all. I'm just going to give kind of some summary statements to see the flow. And we'll get a running start into our verses this morning. First thing he does in verses 1 and 2 of 14, he tells these believers with these massive differences to welcome, to accept, to receive those with whom they disagree. I know that's a very general statement, but he says, stop quarreling over opinions. Those are Paul's words. And accept one another with your differences. And so that's the first thing. We'll explain more what it means to accept and welcome. We'll define that in a moment. Secondly, verse 3, he talks to those who have the freedom of conscience to eat meat, the pro-meat group, and, and he tells them not to pass judgment and not to look down upon those who, who don't eat meat. And, and so they shouldn't have this attitude of superiority. We have our freedom and, you know, you pathetic, poor, restricted people. So he says, don't do that. Don't guard yourselves against that. Then, in verse 3 and 4, he talks to those who have more restrictive consciences. And, and he tells them not to be judgmental towards those who have freedom to eat what they want. So why? Well, his, the reason for this is because God has welcomed them. So if God's welcome those meat eaters, you should too. And, and now, let me just say, this isn't to say that issues like meat eating are unimportant. That's not what Paul, that's not the argument he makes. Like, why are, you, why are you divided over these silly little things like eating meat? He doesn't say that at all. When we, when we talk, we, we can talk about preference differences and and uh, conscience matters and choices and personal convictions that we have. And we can share those and explain those to one another. There's nothing wrong with that. They're, they're all, this shows up in all kinds of ways, whether you recognize it or not. We have, you know, different families have different ways of doing life and functioning and kind of that family lifestyle. And, and you look at, you know, you have your way and you look at another, that's weird, the way they live as a family. And you look at them, that's strange too, because I, of course, am the model of, uh, and, and we are the standard of, that's how we think, naturally, but it could be alcohol, it could be diet, it could be fitness, it could be entertainment choices, or schooling, or, or holidays. How do you spend holidays, and observe holidays, and do you observe them? All those kinds of things. So, so it's not wrong to have convictions and, and preferences on those things, and to talk about them. But here's where we have to be careful. We have to do it with the right attitude. It's one of the things we're going to see come out of this. We can't be judgmental. We need to be humble. We need to be welcoming of those who disagree with us and differ from us. And then also, we, we have to be careful not to let that issue be, become our focus. And this is what often happens. You, 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 this little preference, this little quirk, and it's kind of distinctive of yours. It becomes everything. And you view every buddy and you view every part of life through that lens to the neglect of the more critical matters like the gospel and so that just a couple of cautions so this is so he talks to those that are freer those that are more restrictive and he gives both warnings and it's fourth verse five he talks about the importance of the conscience of the conscience each believer must be fully convinced of his position in his own conscience just a couple things about that. We don't, this could be a whole sermon series, let alone a small introductory point here. Just a couple things. One, God gave you a conscience. Two, 
You need to obey your God-given conscience. You need to live by it. Three, that doesn't mean your conscience is always right. Uh, I, I realize each of those needs to be elaborated more, but, but our conscience, it's, it often needs recalibration. Even throughout our Christian life, a healthy conscience will need to be adjusted by the Word and the Spirit throughout our lives. This, this is something that happens to all of us. But, but we can all see no two believers have exactly the same conscience, even in marriage. Brooke and I, we have, we dis, we have differences and we have different, uh, our conscience kind of raises a red flag at different, different levels and at different times for different things. And so but we, what we have to do is respect the consciences of other believers. We don't make fun of their rules or despise their freedoms. That's what we have to guard against. All right, fifth, I'm just walking through here. You know, if you don't feel like you've got to write all this down, read the article, Nine Marks website. You can find it in better summary of these than I. In verses 6 to 9, Paul tells them to assume the best about one another. You get that? Assume the best about one another. Assume that, that your, your brother or sister in Christ is eating meat or is not eating meat to the glory of God. So he said we should, we should give one another the benefit of the doubt when we, dif- when we are different and when we disagree. This is so hard to do, isn't it? I mean, it really is. This is a struggle. We're so quick to assume motives or to judge the motives of those who disagree with us and, or, or act or think or talk differently than we do. We, we don't just disagree with what they do but we put the worst spin on why they do what they do. And so I just, a little example of this, we, I, I, uh, our television died and we had to buy a new one and I'm just like, what in the, why are they so big? <laughs> they're so big now and there's so many choices, but this is my point. We should assume that a family who has, I don't even know what the biggest ones are now, 100 inch, 4K ultra high definition TV. We should assume, if we walk into a home and see that, we should assume that they have that TV to the glory of God. They may not, I don't know, but that should be our assumption. We should give them the benefit of the doubt. And then we walk into another home and, and we look around and say, they don't have a TV. And you talk, oh, we've never had a television in our house. We should assume that they don't have a TV to the glory of God. I know, but, but our, ten, our, our instinct is to say, man, we're judging, man, why they have a big TV with why do they have no TV? Are they trying to live, you know, hermetic lives here? What are they trying to do? And, uh, but see, we, we judge motives. And Paul says, hey, listen, when you disagree, when there's differences like this, assume the best. Assume that they're, they, they're doing what they're doing for the glory of God. Obviously, if it's contradictory, contradiction to Scripture or some clear uh, biblical um, standard, then that's different. We're not talking about sin, moral issues here. We're talking about conscience, preference. Differences. All right, now we're talking about a sermon about judging one another. Okay, verses 10 to 12, chapter 14, Paul reminds them that they're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. That should change how we think about judging one another. He goes on, and and, in verses 13 to 15, Paul does take sides in the sense that he is pro-meat. And so, (laughs) uh, so believers, he says, believers, you do have the freedom to eat. Uh, you, but he warns against letting that freedom destroy the faith of a more strict brother or sister in Christ, who he calls a weaker conscience brother. So those with stronger consciences, with more freedom, 
they have greater responsibility. Why is that? Well, because those with a free conscience can eat or not eat. They have two options. Those with a stricter conscience, those weak, that weak conscience, they, they don't have that luxury. They can only not eat or they'll sin by violating their conscience. And so the, the free ones must use their freedom wisely and graciously and consider how their choices affect those with more sensitive consciences. That's what, he, that's what he's saying in verses 13 to 15. Now that doesn't mean that it's a sin, a sin to offend or even to irritate a brother or sister with a more sensitive conscience. If, if they don't like your freedoms, that's, that's their problem, not yours necessarily. But if your practice of freedom leads them to sin against their conscience, then that is your problem. And that's what Paul's warning against. And then in verses 16 to 21, he, he says, this, he's kind of summing it up now, he says, eating and drinking is not the most important thing. This is not what life's about. Building one another up in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, that's far more important. And so we, we might expect Paul to use that argument with the kosher folks. You know, it doesn't matter what you put in your body. Just eat what you want. It's what's in the heart that matters. But that's not who he's talking to. He's talking to those who are freer, who have strong conscience. And he says, since food and drink don't do anything to commend you before God, it's no big deal to eat or not eat. It's just food and drink. What matters is is, 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 are these eternal realities that exist. And so why not abstain if your freedom would cause a stricter brother or sister to stumble? And again, it's not to say that these tertiary matters, these kind of third-level matters are unimportant. We can have strong opinions on them, and I know many of you do, on, on diet and lifestyle and politics and music styles and, you know, just, that's fine, but they're not what God's kingdom is about. And dividing over these issues and these matters, it, it doesn't make for what Paul calls, Paul says, peace and for mutual upbuilding. Next, in verse 22, Paul tells the ones with freedom not to flaunt it. Don't rub it in the faces of those that are stricter. And then he tells the strict ones, don't expect everybody to be strict like you are. And then we get into chapter 15. And he calls the strong to follow the example of Christ to put others first. He doesn't say that they have to kind of just lower themselves and to agree with the position of the weak and say, okay, well, I agree that it's wrong to eat meat. Or, or it doesn't mean that they have to never eat meat again or anything like that. They can't exercise their freedoms. But they, they should put others first and, and do nothing that might hurt their faith of their brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Jesus did. Now that brings us to our path. That was the longest introduction I think I've ever done. Let's just call that all part of the sermon, though. That was some of my points. But Paul begins making these concluding statements in chapter 15, and he's drawing it together, not just for our sake of what we're talking about, but he's starting to draw together his whole letter in 15 and 16. And, 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 but, so what would Pastor Paul say to us today? If he was here and he knew the context of our church, he knew, 
he, just as he knew the church in Rome and kind of where the fault lines were and where the differences were and what the community was like and, and the, this, the church in Rome, just like we are trying to reach out to their neighbors and when they do that because it's a diverse community, it's going to make for a diverse church. It's where, it's where we're at. We, 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 we want to in, uh, increasingly reflect the diversity of this, this community we live in because we're making disciples of Christ right where we live. And, and so... So we're going to have differences and we're going to have struggles and there are going to be times when we disagree and, and, we, and, and there's potential fault lines that run through our church and I'm not like, that's not hypothetical. We, we have those areas. So, so what do we what do? We do um, to keep from becoming close, closed in and, and tightening the ranks and, and becoming ingrown and turned in on ourselves? How do we guard against that? And this is what I think Paul would say to us this is what he says to the church in Rome. A couple things. Five, five statements here. First thing is assume your responsibility. Now you can start taking notes. Assume your responsibility. There, there's, there's this command that needs to be obeyed in verse 7 to accept or to welcome one another. Listen, getting along in the church is not easy. <laughs> no amens? <laughs> It's okay. You can say it. It's fine. Uh, it's not natural. It will be very difficult at times. It will mean working hard to be gracious and welcoming to one another. This is why Paul says before this command in verse 7, he says that the God of endurance and encouragement must grant us to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, then we get to verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, we've said this Somewhat already, but this, this idea of welcome or accept, it's not shallow, superficial, insincere, forced acceptance. That's not what we're talking about. But this is wholehearted, willing, warm, drawing near embrace of brothers and sisters in Christ who are very different from us. That's what he's talking about. Oh, I, the, the grammarians in the church, this, let me throw you a bone here just for a minute because this is very helpful, but all of us, listen. This, this little verb, to welcome, it tells us a lot just by the grammar. I mean, this would be the, in the Greek language as, as the New Testament was written. First of all, it's in the imperative mood. That's, we can see that very clearly in the English. It, just meaning it's a command. This is not an option. You know, if you get around to if you if you'd like to have a better church environment, you might want to agree with one another or, or, or welcome one another. No, it's a command. Welcome one another. Secondly, it's present tense. And all that means is that he's talking about something that should always be happening. This is to be continually the habit of your life in the church to welcome one another. Not a, not a sprint every once in a while. You know, let's, 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 let's have a welcoming Sunday. Or let's, let's really go out of our way at this part of the service or in this. No, it's just it's all of life. Welcome, embrace, draw near, accept one another. And then last, the, the voice of this little verb, it's in the middle voice. 
Now, what does that mean? It just, it just means that the subject of the verb, it not only initiates the action, but it, but it also participates in the results of the action. So it would be like, uh, you know, I hit the ball would be uh, um, active voice or I was hit by the ball, would be passive voice. Well, this is, I hit myself with the ball. Now, I'm, just because I'm an idiot or something, boom. but I'm, I'm doing something, and I'm also receiving something. And so what Paul says here is, you, you welcome to yourself one another. I just think of a hug. You're, you're reaching out, and you're, you're moving toward, but you're also drawing them in. And that's the idea of this verb, welcome. Accept them to yourself. It's not, not passive. It's not just I'm doing something towards you. No, I'm, I'm pulling you into me. That's the idea of this verb. So he's, now listen, we've kind of alluded to this already, but he's not talking about welcoming, accepting people in their unrepentant sin or something like that. Paul deals with that elsewhere. He's talking about believers who are different, who disagree on non-essential matters, non-moral issues. There could be doctrinal differences, and that's essentially what you had in this Jewish-Gentile debate. There was theology. It was what's right, what's wrong. It's uh, preferences, personal convictions, music styles, the way we choose to live out the Christian life, cultural differences, all any of those kinds of things. We have to warmly accept and appreciate others even when what they do may seem kind of strange in our eyes. Why do they do that? Why do they live like that? Why do they talk like that? Why do they dress like that? So we have to actively work to include those who are different from us. That's, that's the command. That's the responsibility we must all assume. So it means, very practically, you sit with people who aren't like you. You invite them into your homes. You invite them into your lives. Now, if somebody comes and invites you for a meal today, fellowship time, it doesn't mean that they think you're weird or something like that. And you're so different. That's not what I'm trying to say. But our, but our natural inclination is to spend time only with our closest friends who are just like us. And Paul says, and to a church like ours, you welcome one another, especially when there's differences. So that's the first thing. Assume the responsibility. Second, align your heart. Align your heart. This is what Paul would say to us, I think, today. That the motivation to accept Christians who are different from us is this, is that Christ accepted us. So he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now that little particle there, as, it could be telling us how to welcome one another, just as Christ welcomed you. Or it could be talking about telling us why we should welcome one another, just as or because Christ has welcomed you. Honestly, it doesn't make much of a difference. They're, they're very closely related. We can't divorce the fact that we've been accepted by Christ from how we were accepted by Christ. And Scripture doesn't really make much distinction. Jesus, Romans 5.8, Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. In Romans 5.10, we were His enemies. Romans 3.11, we were not seeking after Him. We, he came looking for us in our lost and our helpless condition. Luke 15.4. So if Christ would have dealt with us as we deserved, He would have condemned us all to hell forever. That's the reality. But He accepted us. He didn't require us to clean up our lives or to, to make vows to change or to do anything to make ourselves deserving of His love. 
No, he, he's like the father of the prodigal son. Je, Jesus runs to us. He embraces us. He welcomes us to, into his family in spite of our dirty rags and our smelly selves. He, he runs towards us. He embraces us and says, just that's how, that's why you accept one another is because Christ has accepted you. So the, the answer to dealing with differences and disagreements and some of those awkwardness in the church, and I don't know what I'm doing, but um, the answer to that is, I'm glad you're not preaching, man. It would be going crazy if, I was, if you were moving around up here. I'm, I'm pretty still. Uh, the answer to that is not to just, when you have those differences, just bite your lip and kind of grin and bear it and say, okay, I'll, I'll tolerate this meal and then I'll... I'll go on back to my life. No, that is not it. That's not the secret to dealing with different people or difficult people. What we need are thankful hearts that continually look up to Jesus and we say, oh, as Christ, as you've accepted me, I accept my brother and sister, though we are very different from one another. That's the answer. That's the hope. That's, that comes from the heart. That's not modifying our, our words and saying nice things smiling. No, it's got to come from the heart. It's thankfulness to God. Oh, you've accepted me in Christ. Who could I, who could I ever refuse to welcome when I see how you've welcomed me? So that's, so we, 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 we assume the responsibility. We align our hearts to, to be motivated by Christ's acceptance of us. And then third, we aim for the right goal. We've got to aim for the right goal. And the goal of accepting Christians different from us is what? It's the glory of God. It's the aim of all life, isn't it? The supreme, ultimate purpose of everything. The aim of accepting one another when we differ is not just so we can get along and live happy lives together. That, though that is wonderful, it's better to get along than not to get along, but it's ultimately so that God gets the glory. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul's whole discussion here assumes that the church is very diverse. And we've already covered that ground. It's made up of people who are just all over the map in terms of differences. Paul's apart. So, so this unlikely, unnatural expression of unity in the church, he says that's going to glorify God in this world. That the thing that the thing that gets God glory in this world and is is the world looking at the church and again saying, How in the world do those people get along with one another? I mean, they're not they're nothing like one another. Some are rich and some are poor, and some come from respectable families and some don't, and some have been following Jesus since they were in diapers, and some have been following Jesus since yesterday, and, and some have, uh, some are from the wrong side of the track, some are from the right side of the track, some hunt and are members of the NRA and they have Ducks Unlimited stickers all over their truck, and, and some would never own or touch a gun in their life. Some drive gas-guzzling SUVs and some ride bikes and take MARTA. Some have advanced degrees and some never graduated from high school. So you, so you, so you look at that and you but they say, but they get along. They don't just get along. They, they love, they genuinely love one another. That, that's beautiful and that brings God so much glory. And so this, this unity in the midst of enormous diversity, it, it glorifies God in this world because it's going so upstream, it's so counterintuitive, so unnatural, 
And so this, this community we're called to cultivate that, that has bonds that are deeper, common interests and just kind of similarities and natural similarities. No, the gospel, Jesus Christ, is the bond that unites very diverse people in the church that otherwise would never be moved towards one another. That's what we see. When a, when a person from extreme poverty has this warm, lively, accepting friendship with a brother in the church who comes from great privilege and wealth. The only shared experience is what? It's life in Jesus Christ. That's what unites them. Glory to God. Or when you have genu- when there's genuine, I mean sincere, mutual respect and acceptance between believers who come from different political backgrounds or persuasions. They, but, the, but the thing they have in common is Christ. It's beautiful. This is the kind of community that's supernatural and it magnifies the grace of God. So he gets glory from it. Just ask you do, you, do you have an agenda to promote the glory of God in this church by promoting unity in this church? An agenda to promote unity by embracing people that naturally would not be the people that you would normally hang around with just because you've been so embraced and accepted by Jesus Christ? Does it get you excited to be with people with whom you have nothing in common except Christ and the gospel. Does that thrill your heart? That's the vision Paul sets before this church in Rome. They had differences. They had loads of baggage with one another that went back to birth. There were some chips on the shoulders of the Gentiles towards the Jews and Jews toward the Gentiles, but they... Paul says you're to be together, loving one another, accepting one another because you've been accepted by Jesus Christ to the glory of God. I, I just, I want us to embrace that vision for the church, this church. I, I just, students, I mean, you, you guys, I know are about to have a camp meeting after or during Sunday school and you guys are going to go for a week camp. What, a, what an opportunity to, to flesh this out, to live this out together. I know I've, I know it wasn't that long ago I was in student ministries and I know the tendency to just kind of group together with people that I'm always with. What about really setting goals for yourself to really pursue others that you don't know as well, who are different from you? As Christ has accepted you, accept, welcome, fold them in to the people in the, in the well. Uh, we, don't, we don't want to have a type in student ministries, a mold that everybody kind of has to fit in or they don't belong. And so, so this is students, but it's not just students. It's parents, it's the rest of us, it's all of us. We've, we've got to model it. I just say to you, does, does your dinner table reflect the unity and diversity that we desire as a church? Do you, do you welcome believers and unsaved people, but even believers into your home who are very different from you? It will be hard to do here what you refuse to do there. And so it's, it's a place to start. It's in the home. Again, not just tolerating, not just because the pastor said, and so I grudgingly, oh, okay, I'll invite 
those culprits and weirdos over, freaks. And uh, not that, but, but, but really pulling people close to us, embracing them, seeing the beauty in that rich diversity. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's training our eyes to see beauty, see this vision of this diverse people that welcomes one another in Christ. Fourth, what would Paul say to us in our context? I think he would say this. Consider Jesus and his mission. Consider Jesus and his mission. The, the basis for accepting Christians who differ from us is the mission of Messiah. This is where he goes. It's a kind of a tight theological argument. He loads up scripture passages here in these verses. But we're called to real fellowship, real acceptance of one another, real love and care for one another. And the basis for that is this is why Christ came. That's what he says. He came to build one church, as Jesus says in John 10, one flock with one shepherd. And so our our cultivation of community is rooted in in the mission of Christ as revealed in Scripture. So he explains in verses 8 and 9 how Christ has accepted both Jew and Gentile. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness. Not because they deserved it, not because they were worthy of it. It was grace in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So in verse 8, there's this, Paul gives this reminder to the Gentiles that God has this priority for Israel. We, you see this in, in, in Romans 9 to 11. And then he, in, the, in verses 9 and following there, and the verses that follow, he reminds the Jews that the promises that God made to the Jewish fathers included the reception of the Gentiles. So he's speaking to both groups and, 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 and backing it up with Scripture and saying neither group then should look down on one another, but you should accept one another. Because that's what Christ has done. That was his mission. Make you one. And so he goes on to show how Scripture confirms the, God's mercy to the Gentiles, that, that God's mercy to the Gentiles will bring glory to him, and, and, and along with joy and hope to the nations. And So verses 9 to 12. Again, he knows that the Gentile, Jewish believers are probably going to be judgmental toward these, these Gentile pagan background brothers. And so he backs up his claim that Christ's ministry will lead to the Gentiles glorifying God just by piling up Scripture passages. He goes from the law, from the prophets, from the, from the Psalms, uh, and, and, he, and he, so he's quoting all over the Old Testament to, to show that the Gentiles will be included to the praise of God's glory and grace. And so he's, he's backing it up. And so in verse 9, he cites Psalm 18:49, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. So the Messiah will praise God among the nations gathered around His throne. Then he goes further, verse 10, from the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. So it's not just the Messiah is going to sing among the nations. No, He's calling, Rejoice with His people. And so he's going past and saying that the Gentiles are invited to rejoice with God's people. They both share in the blessings of salvation. Rejoice with. And then verse 11, he cites Psalm 117.1. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. So he goes a step further. He says the Gentiles are invited to praise God on their own. Israel's not even mentioned in this verse. 
And then in verse 12, he cites Isaiah 11.10. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So the inclusion of the Gentiles is because this Jewish king from the root of Jesse, of David's line, will come and he will offer hope of salvation to the nations. Now you can imagine there were Gentiles in this Roman church who were thinking and possibly saying out loud at this time, you know, God's done with the Jews. It's all about the nations now. But Paul says, no, the Son of God came to be a servant to the Jews for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. He's, he's calling, his calling to the Jewish people is permanent. It's not changing. He's made that very clear in Romans. And you can imagine J- Jewish Christians, again, troubled by these pagan background Gentile believers and Paul says, no, God's mercy to the Gentiles, to the nations, shows the kind of acceptance that you ought to have for Gentile background believers. And so, I'll just say, the unity in the church, is not just our vision, it's not our mission that we made up. No, this is Christ's mission. It's not just some Vision 2020 initiative that we wordsmith. No, the basis for our cultivation of community in this local church is the mission of Jesus, to make people one. That's got to be the foundation. How will that ever be possible? And that brings us to the final verse, the final statement, is depend on God's Spirit. Depend on God's Spirit. The means of accepting Christians who differ with us is the Holy Spirit of God. So what's, what's the source? What's the source of peace and fellowship in the local church? It's, it's the work of God, the power of the Spirit. The antidote for a divided congregation, for people who differ, it's, it's found at the throne of grace. And this is what Paul does. He, he comes to the end of this appeal and this, he's labored this point for two chapters now and really going back farther than that. And now he's coming to the end of the book. And what does he do? He prays. He prays. Verse 13, look at it with me. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Just a few observations about this little prayer, benediction. One, God is the origin and object of hope. He's the God of hope. God is the one who gives hope, who, who authors hope, who is the, he's the source, he's the origin of it, and he's also the object of hope. Second, God grants his people joy and peace as they believe. Joy. And Paul talks about joy more than anyone else in the New Testament. It's not just a nice addition to the Christian life that some might want. No, it's core to being a believer in Jesus Christ. Peace. It's not, just the, it's not that objective peace that comes because of our reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. This is that subjective peace that we experience with God and with one another because of that objective work that's been done. But Paul prays that God would not just give us a little, throw us a little joy and peace, but fill us, just inundate us with joy and peace as we trust in Him. And then finally, the goal of this prayer is that we will abound in hope by the power of the Spirit. The purpose, the so that of this prayer is that we would be characterized by this abounding hope that comes by the Spirit's power. And so maybe we're talking about biblical community and, and, and this, this provokes in you kind of feelings of despair, frustration, cynicism. This will never, this doesn't work. This can't happen here. 
Maybe it provokes those kinds of feelings instead of abounding hope. But how, how, could, how could we really become what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, Justin? This, this a more growing, widely diverse, welcoming, disciple-making, life-sharing, unified, truth-rich, uh, joyful, spirit-filled church. Because maybe you've been so disappointed by the church before, or maybe this church, and you, you don't know if you can go on. Or maybe you've been so disappointed by broken relationships with believers and just I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to go on. How do you go on? This is how you go on. (laughs) Because the God of hope will fill you with joy and peace as you believe so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's not a random benediction. This is Paul. This is where he turns. He knows it's not easy. He knows it's It's not simple and simplistic. It's it's difficult. He says, we have the Spirit. So the ability to experience the gospel and community, experience unity in in a diverse church, it depends on the work of God in us. It's not something that just comes to us naturally, that we work from within. No, we need the filling of the Holy Spirit for this to be a reality. Just two statements. I know I'm pushing it here. I just want to leave two Real quick, concluding statements. One, realize that accepting one another, welcoming welcoming one another is a two-way responsibility. I know you may hear this and you think, man, I'm so glad they're here to listen to this message. Is this one of those kind of messages? They're so so unaccepting of people. That's not it. The The problem in the church is not just that people won't accept you or accept someone you... I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. Paul takes, talks to both people. He doesn't pick a side and say, you guys, you're good, but you over here, you need to, you need to get your act together and start welcoming these other people. No, he says to the strong, to the weak, to the stricter, to the freer. He says, you, you've got to accept one another. You, you both have a responsibility to move towards one another in love. And so, so don't just sit back and wait to be welcomed. You move towards one another. That's se- secondly, Evaluate your own attitudes towards others to see if there is any residual favoritism, partiality, or prejudice, or discrimination that remains. And there is. We don't always see it. It's like bad breath. We don't always recognize it, but it's there. James 2 has a great picture of this. He talks about this well-dressed man who comes in, wealthy man, comes in the church, and then some poor, shabbily-dressed man walks in, and so who, who are you going to welcome? Who are you going to reach? Who are you going to give the good seat? Who are you going to tell to kind of stand at the back and keep quiet? So, so if, 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 if we treat him differently, James says, you're showing partiality. He calls that sin. Well, if this is a perennial issue for you, sin for you, how do you deal with it? Well, just a couple things. Acknowledge it as sin. Call it what it is. It's not just how I was raised. No, it's sin. Secondly, ask God to help you overcome the sin. He wants, he wants to help you. Third, take action in rooting it out. Put some shoe leather on your resolve. Change where you sit. Get involved with the welcome team. I know that's not the end all, but that's a great first opportunity. Use the break that we're about to have after, that will be shorter than normal uh, for coffee and refreshment. Use it differently. Don't just clump together with the same people you talk to every Sunday. Just kind of make, be intentional with that. 
Make plans to invite someone over from a meal who, for a meal who's maybe outside your normal circle. I mean, just, just take action. Deal with it. Open, open, open your eyes. Let's pray. Father, I join with Paul in his prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of that, Father, we pray that we would welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Now may the God of, God of hope, may you fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that the, by the power of your Holy Spirit we might abound in hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.